Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. The Indian Ocean has become the new global center for trade and energy flows, accounting for half of world's container traffic and 70% of petroleum shipments. This has made the Indian Ocean region a potential arena for strategic competition between India and China. Sri Lanka, struggling to pay its debts, has signed a huge port deal with China. Beijing's growing influence in Sri Lanka is making neighboring India anxious because it considers the Indian Ocean region to be its backyard. We are going to have to live with greater Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean region. There are these projects that the Chinese have undertaken under the Belt and Road Initiative. This is a very smart strategy that has created an organic need for Chinese naval forces in the Indian Ocean. In this episode, the India and China rivalry playing out in the Indian Ocean. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. For centuries, the Indian Ocean has been a crucial trade route, with merchant ships trading goods at ports on three continents and many islands in between. Access to the ocean is vital. So it's perhaps no surprise there's been increasing forays by China into what India considers its own backyard and traditionally its sphere of influence. China's investments and its maritime pursuits have clearly extended Sino-Indian geopolitical rivalry into the Indian Ocean. From Pakistan to Myanmar, Mauritius to the Maldives, China is a growing presence. Many of the island nations affected have long come under the patronage of India. In the wake of World War II, when Great Britain began the process of decolonisation, India assumed the role of protector of a number of the newly independent island nations in the region. So China's flexing of its industrial and military might over the last two decades, impacting on the economic and political lives of nation-states across the Indian Ocean, has caused discomfort in New Delhi. So what are China's motivations? How is India reacting to a looming Chinese presence closer to its shores? And how can smaller nation-states in the region benefit from this rivalry between India and China? To examine the current state of competition between the two countries and how it's playing out in the Indian Ocean, we're joined by Asia watchers and political observers from the School of Social and Political Sciences here at the University of Melbourne. Professor Derek McDougall and Dr Pradeep Tunisia. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Before we get to the rivalry between India and China, specifically in the Indian Ocean, can we start with a a big picture look at the relationship between the two countries? Because it would seem that there's been such a flurry of high level visits between India and China. I think the two leaders have met three times in the matter of four months. Well, recently, relations between China and India have seemed to be reset. That's the word being used by the Indian media. And that really refers to a visit by Prime Minister Narendra Modi to Wuhan in China to have an informal summit with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping. It's unusual for Indian and Chinese leaders to have such summit, but it seems that in international diplomacy, informal summits are becoming very common because uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to Wuhan was followed very soon after that with a visit to Russia to meet with President Putin again in an informal summit. So maybe this informal diplomacy is becoming a part of uh, 
India's and China's um, sort of diplomatic behavior. But relations between China and India were pretty tense over the last couple of years. And I think this attempt by both sides to try and ease tensions and focus on trying to find common ground where they can work together is probably a welcome step, but I'm not sure how long it's going to last. Ah, indeed. Well, that would be the question, Derek, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I guess so. I suppose I see India and China as uh, competitors rather than as intense rivals. And yes, they do compete geopolitically and they represent rather different political systems. And at one level, they're the two great emerging powers, but that doesn't mean there aren't elements of cooperation. I suppose in terms of international organisations, you've got the uh, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, um, that has some significance. So they do cooperate, but Hmm. I wonder how do you see this uh, recent thawing, if I can call it that, up against their competitive relationship that has long been so? Yeah, I'd say uh, competition is probably more significant than um, the cooperation. So if we look at... But they're not enemies. They're not enemies. It's not that intense. Well, they've learned to accommodate each other. Yeah, and you have lots of situations like around the world in terms of major powers, well, the United States and China, the United States and Russia, Russia and China, there's all this jockeying and so on, this competition and cooperation or accommodation and what is the uh, specific situation at at any uh, given point. That's what you're trying to assess. I mean, competition and cooperation are, I think, the two features of the China-India relationship. But it kind of varies from time to time. There was a time under the previous Indian government of you know, Manmohan Singh when India and China were both negotiating you know, the Paris Accord and even before that, the Copenhagen Environmental Summit where India and China are working together. The former Indian Minister of Environment, in fact, even talked about a Copenhagen spirit, you know, the kind of cooperation India and China exhibited in Copenhagen. And he said that this could be a defining feature of the bilateral relationship. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened. I mean, competition seems to be a more important feature than cooperation. Though, would you go so far as to agree with the description that some put on it of being a new emerging Cold War? Pradeep, is that giving it too much on the tension side versus the cooperation side? I, I wouldn't say it's a new emerging Cold War because while Clearly, there is competition between India and China in some areas more than others. But at the same time, there are many other sort of platforms where India and China are cooperating. So, for example, Derek mentioned BRICS. I mean, BRICS, both India and China are major parts of BRICS. And in fact, India and China are the only two countries in BRICS whose economies are still growing because Russia isn't doing terribly well. Brazil isn't doing very well. South Africa isn't doing greatly. So India and China are the only two major countries within BRICS which are still growing. Plus, recently, India has joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a forum which you know was formed by Russia and China along with a number of other Central Asian countries. But both India and Pakistan have now joined Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So there's a number of other platforms. For example, there's an India-Russia-China uh, platform also. So there's a number of platforms where India and China do engage in trilateral or quadrilateral manner. But at the same time, I think there is clearly a growing competition, both economic and strategic, between these two countries. And Derek, how does that play out specifically in the Indian Ocean? I'd say this is one uh, context where you do have the um, 
rivalry between China and India. I'd say India is clearly the leading power in the Indian Ocean, and you can appreciate that just by looking at a map. Unfortunately, we can't have a map with a podcast, uh, but you look at the map and India's, well, it's not really a dagger. It's more like, uh, I don't know, a big triangle coming down in into the Indian Ocean, and it just appears natural that India is going to uh, play a leading role in the Indian Ocean. It's not quite the force of gravity, but China is somewhat more distant, and it is involved in the Indian Ocean, I suppose, at one level, partly in terms of its competition with India, but it would also see a broader strategic and economic advantages for itself being involved in the Indian Ocean. So what is India's naval presence in the Indian Ocean? How far do they project? Good question. Well, they certainly have links with the various island states in the Indian Ocean, uh, the ones we have studied in particular. Over the past several years, there's been a uh, mechanism called the Trilateral uh, Maritime, Maritime Security, Security yeah. Cooperation involving, well, India is the uh, leading power, and then Sri Lanka, Maldives, Mauritius, and Seychelles. It's more than trilateral, <laughs> but they haven't renamed it. Um, and in a way, this is symbolic. Uh, perhaps more significant would be the various bilateral defence arrangements between India and each of the island states. So I've studied Mauritius and Seychelles, and India is quite involved in terms of providing security advice, security leadership, defence equipment, radar surveillance, even in the case of Mauritius, providing a national security advisor to the Prime Minister of Mauritius and the uh, head of the um, Coast Guard in uh, Mauritius is provided by India. So India is very much embedded in Mauritian security and the same kind of thing happens in the case of Seychelles, perhaps not to the same extent, but still quite significant. And, and I want to look specifically at those island nation states in a minute. So that's the sort of a, a broad picture. What about China, Pradeep, and the so-called string of pearls? String of pearls was actually a term initially put forward by, I think, a management consultancy. This is a term which has been around since 2004. It was included in a report commissioned by the U.S. Defense Department with Booz Allen Hamilton in a big consulting firm which consults regularly with the Defense Department. And they used the term the string of pearls to refer to the port facilities that China was building across the Indian Ocean. And even though most of these facilities are actually civilian port facilities, but there is a speculation that they could be used for military purposes, for naval purposes, by the Chinese in the PLA Navy. China has, of course, reacted very angrily to this and saying that this is a beat-up, there is no substance to it. But the opening of China's first military base in Djibouti in East Africa has certainly, you know, highlighted China's growing military presence. And China has built the Gwadar port in Pakistan, uh, which is, of course, very close to India. And Pakistani officials, in fact, have from time to time called upon China to open a naval base there, even though Chinese have denied that they have any intention of opening a naval base there. But Pakistanis themselves have been actually saying that they would like China to open a military base there. And Chinese investment in Pakistan is much more than just a port, isn't it? I mean, there's that $60 billion economic corridor. There's so much more that is being built, roads, power stations, hospitals. 
Gwadar is the terminal point for the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is the flagship project of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And Gwadar doesn't really have much of economic activity at this stage. It's a port that China has built, but at the same time, China is also building highways which will connect China's Xinjiang province to Gwadar. And there's also a plan for railways that will you know, eventually traverse the Himalayan mountains and all the way up to Gwadar. So there's a number of major economic sort of projects that China is undertaking in Pakistan. And it's been said that China wants to use Gwadar to open up China's western region, you know, Xinjiang particularly, and allow trade to flow from China's interior, China's western regions, all the way to the Indian Ocean. And they, in fact, demonstrated a couple of years ago by bringing a number of containers from China via Xinjiang over the Karakoram sort of pass and then up to Gwadar. But as it was reported by one of the Pakistani newspapers, that half the containers were empty. And this was simply a demonstration to show that this corridor had been opened up, that this could be done. But the reality is that most of China's manufacturing takes place on the east coast of China, not in Xinjiang. And therefore, economically, it doesn't really make much sense for China's trade to flow via Pakistan from Gwadar all the way to Xinjiang and then the east coast of China. So it is much cheaper to transport goods by these huge ships that exist these days, you know, container ships, than to actually use trucks and, and railways. So what do you think Gwadar is all about as a port facility? I think Gwadar has much more strategic significance than economic significance. Economically, it might help Pakistan and maybe you know, China, Xinjiang region to some extent. But It has much greater strategic significance, particularly as China's power and China's interests continue to grow in the Indian Ocean. Gwadar is likely to play a much more important role in that. If we just shift along a bit to Myanmar, that's another country with a Chinese-funded port development? Yes, indeed. Indeed. And China has also built pipeline, oil and gas pipelines from Myanmar all the way to Kunming in China. So there is both an energy corridor and and a port facility that China is building in Myanmar. So China's interests in Myanmar obviously are significant. They are related to China's own border areas in Yunnan. Yunnan province of China has closed ties, economic ties with Myanmar. When you look at a map of the Indian Ocean and you look at the port facilities that China is building all around the Indian Ocean, whether we like to call it an odd string of pearls, the fact is that there is a large number of ports that are built and in many cases operated by Chinese companies. The concern from the Indian point of view is that these port facilities under pressure could be made available for Chinese military in in a crisis situation. So that's been the fear in India. And that was the essence of the report that Booz Allen Hamilton you know, mm. did, did for, for the, the U.S. US Defense, Defense Department. Defense yes. Department. Mm. And China doesn't worry too much when there is a more authoritarian government in power in a particular country. If, if you're thinking about uh, Myanmar, well, China being authoritarian itself. So if it has certain strategic objectives, and I think you saw this in the past with Myanmar and right up to the present, China does focus on its strategic objectives and comparing with India. India has more scruples, I suppose, in terms of whether the government is democratic or not. But sometimes there's a bit of a grey area there too. (laughs) That can relate to the competition with China. I think that was the case in Myanmar. So 
if we look at Pakistan, then we look at Myanmar. But as you mentioned earlier, Derek, you were talking about Mauritius and the Seychelles. Mm-hmm. And in fact, both of you have recently co-authored a paper on competition in Indian Ocean Island countries. Why for you the focus on these smaller states, Sri Lanka, which of course is key. And if you talk about port facilities, which we will in a minute, there's a story there. The Maldives, Mauritius and the Seychelles. Pradeep, how important do you think the, these nation states are? The small island states in the Indian Ocean obviously are important strategically from India's point of view and increasingly from China's point of view. But I think there is a tendency to see them as basically passive players, that other countries can try and influence these countries and they will simply follow. But often it is neglected that these countries, these small island states, in fact, have their own agency. In other words, they have their own perception of their interests. And they also want to maximize gains, particularly economic gains, by often playing one of these powers against the other. And they know that China has much bigger economic resources, even though traditionally India has exercised much greater strategic influence in the Indian Ocean region. But China is now coming with a much bigger largesse in terms of China's loans and grants that China is able to offer to these countries. So there is a tendency on the part of these countries to play one against the other. Is that a dangerous game? It's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game, as we saw, for example, in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, as Derek said earlier, India was uh, reluctant both for domestic reasons and for other reasons to provide military assistance to the Sri Lankan government during the civil war. The civil war was between the Sri Lankan government and the Tamils, uh, the ethnic Tamil minority in Sri Lanka. And India, of course, has a very large Tamil population in the Tamil Nadu state of India. And therefore, India was not willing to offer military assistance to Sri Lanka. But China stepped in and China provided military assistance, which eventually led to the crushing of the Tamil Tigers and and deaths of nearly 40,000 civilians in the last phase of the Sri Lankan civil war. But the close relationship that Sri Lanka developed under the former president uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa with China, ultimately, once the civil war ended in 2009, Sri Lanka then continued to work closely with China. And China then offered to build the port facilities in Hamantota, the new airport, the new cricket stadium, the highways, a whole new infrastructure with loans extended to, to Sri Lanka. And then in 2014, Sri Lanka allowed two Chinese submarines to dock in Colombo, in Sri Lanka's capital, in the Colombo port, unannounced as far as India was concerned. I mean, there is an understanding between Sri Lanka and India that Sri Lanka would let India know if any such development was likely to take place. But Sri Lanka did not inform India. India found out later on that Chinese submarines were visiting Colombo port. So from India's point of view, these surprises are not welcome. Derek, I mean, we saw that's very much the internal politics of Sri Lanka affecting how they're playing the game Mm. between Mm. China and India. How much does domestic politics influence how these island nations balance their interests and their level of agency? I think uh, domestic politics is very important. With the domestic politics of the island states, those politics are very important in terms of maximising the agency the uh, independence, if you like, of the island states. And the uh, general point is that if you have a fair bit of consensus or unity within an island state, that can um, increase the uh, bargaining power, if you like, of the island state vis-a-vis the uh, great powers. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by political scientist Professor Derek McDougall and Dr Pradeep Tunisia from the School of Social and Political Sciences of the University of Melbourne. So we were just talking about uh, Sri Lanka and definitely the influence of China and India from a political point of view and I guess also economically. How different is that going to be under the current government? Uh, As you were just talking about, uh, Pradeep, a lot happened under President Rajapaksa, but we have a new government now. Are things changing? Things have changed, I think, from India's point of view. There has been a difference compared to the previous, the Rajapaksa government. Uh, For example, first of all, when the new government came to power in 2015 in Sri Lanka, they temporarily suspended in the construction of a number of projects in in Sri Lanka, partly because they wanted to scrutinize contracts and they wanted to make sure that the developments were in Sri Lanka's interest. And many of those projects have resumed and there's construction going on. There have been renegotiations, of course. But given that Sri Lanka currently has a serious balance of payments problem, Sri Lanka has a huge foreign debt. A big part of it is owed to China. And therefore, the Sri Lankan government's hands are tied in the sense that there's a limited degree of freedom that they have in terms of negotiating. India doesn't have the financial capability to bail Sri Lanka out. So Sri Lanka is now looking at the International Monetary Fund to try and get assistance so that they can repay some of the foreign debt, particularly the Chinese debt. But at the same time, in terms of relations, for example, when the Sri Lankan government signed an agreement with a Chinese company to hand over the management of the Hamantota port to this Chinese company called China Because Merchants they couldn't port. pay the debt. Because they couldn't pay the debt. They signed a 1990 lease with the Chinese company China Merchants Port. But when they handed over the port's management to this Chinese company, the Sri Lankan government assured India that this port will not be used for military purposes, that the military use of the port will be controlled by the Sri Lankan government. And recently, they made a decision to move one of their naval bases from Gal to Hamantota, which is again an attempt to reassure India that while for economic reasons, Sri Lanka has allowed this Chinese company to manage the port because they had really very little choice. But at the same time, they will make sure that the developments in Hamantota are not inimical to India's interests. So if we, if we look at Seychelles and Mauritius, Derek, how does China position itself in those two island nations? And where does sort of India sit? Can you draw us a picture of how those influences work on the ground? As far as China is concerned, and uh, starting off with Mauritius, I think the attraction of Mauritius currently is that it provides an economic platform, if you like, for uh, Chinese entree into various African countries. Mauritius has agreements with a number of African countries to facilitate investment and economic development of one kind or another. So uh, China, involving itself in Mauritius, can uh, derive advantage from those agreements. And uh, from the Mauritian perspective, they um, see uh, Chinese involvement as helping their own economic development. Mauritius might be very much focused on India from a security perspective, but they don't see any uh, major problems in terms of involving China. So there's two quite different relationships. One is more economic, one is more... It's a little bit like uh, the Australian situation. There's the alliance with the United States, very important in terms of security, and of course there's a very strong 
Australian economic relationship with the United States, but that does not preclude Australia wanting to develop its economic relations with China. Australian governments have seen those two dimensions as being quite compatible. So Mauritius is a little bit like that on a smaller scale. Now, as far as Seychelles is concerned, it's a much smaller country and there's Chinese involvement in areas such as tourism and various aid projects, but China doesn't really see Seychelles as being of major significance, I think, in terms of developing Chinese economic links with Africa. It it does in some respects. For example, recently there was a case where India and the Seychelles government had signed an agreement where India was going to help build basically a military base for the Seychelles on one of the islands. Mm. And this was a bilateral agreement. Then the Seychelles government late last year asked uh, to renegotiate it. Uh, Then the Indian Foreign Secretary at the time, Jay Shankar, he went to Seychelles to renegotiate it. And they thought, okay, the renegotiations had reached an agreement which India could live with. But then the Seychelles parliament decided not to ratify that agreement. In other words, that agreement that the Indian and Seychelles government had agreed for India to build a military facility, which will be a joint facility, will be used by both the Indian and the Seychelles navies. But there is speculation in India that that decision by the Seychelles parliament was in fact at the behest of the Chinese, that the Chinese have obviously influenced some opposition politicians in Seychelles and blocked the development of this facility. So can India counter that? The Seychelles president recently visited India and he said that India and Seychelles are still continuing to discuss this. So India has not given up on it. And I believe that that facility will be built. But at the moment, within the domestic politics of you know, the Chinese Seychelles, mm-hmm. it is at the moment stuck where opposition has objected to it. In the case of the Seychelles, generally they have this balancing strategy and there's a fair bit of consensus about that. But if a government goes too far in one direction, either towards India or China, and I think what uh, Pradeep has referred to is a good recent example, the um, opposition might be critical. So in that case, the opposition was critical on the basis of the government going too far towards India. But uh, the same opposition has also been critical of some of the aid projects supported by China in the Seychelles. Specifically, China was a major donor in relation to the building of parliament and the Supreme Court. And uh, I think the opposition said, well, this was not really a good situation, seeing uh, China was not a democracy, nor was it particularly noted for upholding the rule of law. (laughs) So so this is the classic, not too close to one, not too close to the other. And it just depends how you can balance it. And Pradeep, in the Maldives, I mean, there's been a lot more political influence, hasn't there? I mean, Maldives and India have had long-standing historical ties, both economic and strategic. But again, in Maldives, there is a government in power at the moment, which came to power after overthrowing a democratically elected government in 2012. And President Yamin, the current Maldivian president, he obviously has developed very close ties with China. And he's trying to attract investments from China, is trying to borrow money from China. And and China warned Um, India not to intervene. Exactly. I mean, earlier this year, we had a situation where the Moldavian government staged what's been described as a self-coup, 
where the Moldavian Supreme Court gave a verdict where they asked the government to release the opposition politicians who had been imprisoned you know, a few years ago. And the president of Maldives responded by arresting the Supreme Court judges. And India, of course, criticized that. And there were calls by the former Moldavian president, Nasheed, for India to intervene militarily. I mean, there's, of course, a history of Moldavian governments asking India to intervene. In 1988, India had intervened in Maldives by sending in Indian troops to save the government of the then President Gayoom, who is currently in jail. So the Indian government has been calling upon the Moldavian government to release the judges and release the opposition politicians. But Chinese official media published editorials about the Maldivian situation and essentially warning India not to intervene in Maldives because there will be consequences that China will not sit idly by if India did that. India and China apparently have had negotiations. At least India has tried to explain to China the situation in the Maldives. But I think when push comes to the shove, India is unlikely to cede its influence uh, so close to India's neighborhood. Maldives is 400 kilometers from India's southern shore. So mm-hmm. India is unlikely to be kind of deterred by China. And I think if the situation in Maldives deteriorates, we could see Indian intervention in Maldives. And then would China back off? Because that becomes the key point, doesn't it? When push comes to shove, how far does each go in pursuing their own geopolitical strategic interests? I think Maldives is important for China because China is trying to exert its influence in the Indian Ocean. But I don't think China is willing to go to war with India over Maldives. I mean, it is not as strategically significant for for the Chinese, at least not at this stage. So Chinese are very good at recognizing, you know, spheres of influence, but at the same time, they tend to push. So they recognize their own sphere of influence. But the problem has been that the Chinese seem to be kind of deaf to this idea that perhaps another major Asian power, India in this case, uh, which is now the world's fastest growing economy, it has a population comparable to that of China, it has its own neighborhood, and it has its own strategic interests. I mean, John Garver, the American India-China relations expert, in fact, recently described China as an autistic power, that it's unable to understand or empathize with the concerns of others, while it pushes its own concerns, but it's unable to understand that other powers have similar concerns. So as far as the Indian Ocean is concerned, India clearly sees itself as having the dominant role. India also recognized that the United States is the predominant power in the region, but the Chinese are not quite sort of good at looking at this. They sometimes talk about perhaps India and China working together to weaken American influence in the Indian Ocean region. I mean, I don't know why this would be in India's interest, particularly working with China to weaken the American position. Particularly when you think about the reigniting of the the so-called quad, when you've got Japan, Australia and India and the US working, many would say, specifically to try and weaken China's sphere of influence. But it goes to that broader question, doesn't it, Derek, of what, what do you see as the likely outcome? And fundamentally, can India compete with the very deep pockets of China? I think uh, India has a lot of geopolitical advantages. Going back to the map, this is really India's backyard. It doesn't have to project its power very far to have a significant influence. And you mentioned the United States. Well, in terms of cooperation among the great powers in the Indian Ocean, cooperation between the United States and India would be um, most significant. And India 
also has quite a lot of cooperation with France, actually, in the southwest Indian Ocean. I think back in the 1980s, India had contingency plans for intervening in both Mauritius and the um, Seychelles. That did not happen, but you did have the interventions in both uh, the Maldives and Sri Lanka. And how did China respond then? I think it's a situation, or these situations, if they uh, arise, would not elicit a uh, military response by China. But they're significant in terms of India, in a way, getting into more difficult territory. It doesn't really want to go to that last resort of military intervention. It's really just a complicating factor for India. Now, is that in China's interests or not? China wants to advance its position, but it doesn't want to do so to the point where it might encourage Indian intervention. I'm not sure about that. To sort of summarise, do you think it is a peaceful, competitive landscape is how you see the, the future, that they will find a way to, you know, not necessarily literally accommodate each other, but they will find a way to work around each other? I think as long as there is an understanding that, from the Chinese point of view, that like China likes to have its own you know, spheres of influence, Indian Ocean traditionally has been the sphere of Indian influence. And as Derek said, India is at the heart of the Indian Ocean. I mean, just geographically, that's the geography of India. India has access to the open seas, unlike China. India has access to most of the choke points you know, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, even though there is clearly a difference between the naval capabilities of China and India, but as far as India's sort of naval capabilities are concerned for the protection and for the promotion of India's naval interest in the Indian Ocean, India, in fact, is, I think, quite capable of doing that. But at the same time in India, there is a growing recognition that the Indian Ocean is not India's lake that India cannot prevent other powers, and particularly China in this case, from having a certain degree of presence in the Indian Ocean. So there is that understanding, I think, among Indian strategic circles that China will be a player in the Indian Ocean. The question is whether China will be the dominant player in India's own neighborhood. That is something which is unacceptable to India. Mm. Yes, I think India still wants to have the leading role, Yeah, uh, but it has to work out how to play that role in conjunction with other powers being involved. And I think from China's perspective, perhaps the um, goal is to see how far it can go in terms of it extending its influence without provoking actual military conflict between China and India. I don't think China wants that, but obviously it's prepared to go a fair way in terms of extending its political influence. So as we sit now, neither of you can see a potential flashpoint in the immediate future. In the Indian Ocean, I don't think China and India are you know, likely to you know, go to war, so to speak. But at the same time, there will be growing competition. And there will be growing situations where the interest of the two might not coincide. And therefore, there is a possibility that as situation develops in the Indian Ocean, particularly as the small Indian Ocean island states try to play one against the other, that we could have situations where there could be tensions. But at the same time, I don't see any full-scale conflict between China and India in the Indian Ocean. I think we'll take the glass half full optimistic route for, <laughs> for ending this conversation. Derek and Pradeep, many thanks for your time. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Our guests have been political scientists Dr Pradeep Tunisia and Professor Derek McDougall of the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. 
Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 20th of August 2018. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.